1: The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
0: Welcome to Lighthouse Lookback. My name is Noel Fogelman. Be sure to subscribe to the Lighthouse Hockey Channel on iTunes and wherever podcasts are found. Lighthouse Look Back is a podcast where we catch up with former Islanders, whether they have played one game or hundreds with the team. Mike Watt was selected 32nd overall by the Edmonton Oilers in the 1994 draft. The forward made his NHL debut three years later. He played 14 games with the Oilers, scoring his first NHL goal. Following the 1997-98 season, Watt was traded to the Islanders for goalie of the future, Eric Fischow. Watt scored 13 goals in 120 games over the next two seasons on the island. Unfortunately, Mike Milbury struck again, trading Watt to the National Predators in 2001. After his stint with the Preds, Mike landed in Carolina, playing five games in the 2002-03 season. The Ontario native headed overseas before ending his career in the IHL. Find out what Mike is up to now
1: right now our our team that i was the head coach and general manager of uh in the ushl um we decided to take a year off uh and try to relocate we had some leasing issues um with the building uh so i shut the operation down here and uh my ownership group is looking for another place uh at the moment to hopefully relocate so uh kind of in limbo but my wife uh moved back to grand rapids uh with with my daughter uh, for her job promotion, we were going to be moving back there. Uh, so my son and I are now in Bloomington, Illinois, uh, obviously with the coronavirus, just kind of hanging out.
0: Right, how old is your son?
1: Uh, he's 16.
0: Oh, okay, All right. does he play too?
1: Yeah, so he played for the Chicago Furies. So I was actually lucky enough uh, this year to coach him um, with the Fury. And uh, we traveled back and forth, which was about an hour and forty-five minutes, um, you know, both ways. So it was a drive, but uh, podcasts, you know, they're they're a wonderful thing because you know they can obviously take your mind off of things. And when you're driving that far uh, and the traveling that we did, uh, I was able to listen to a lot of podcasts, and so was my son.
0: Oh, that's great! That's great. What are some of your favorites?
1: <laughs> uh, obviously Spitting Chiclets. <laughs> Yeah, Terry Ryan had one with third man in, and now yeah. he's doing another one, Tales with TR, uh, you know, because I was playing against him. And I think it's nice, uh, you know, when I, I listened to yours with Chase and Bedouin, oh, okay. uh, yeah. I'm going to listen to, the, yeah, the Mick Vakota one, because uh, Dennis Vasky was up in uh, Chicago running right. Fury. Um, so we had a lot of good Islander stories from back in the day. We, we missed each other by a year, but, uh, you know, we still play with same, the same personalities.
0: Right. And, you know, there's a common denominator, which we'll get to in a little bit of the show, which, you know, I'm, I'm, sure, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm sure you know who that is, but uh, yeah, I'll, 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 the, I'll... Uh,
1: the white elephant in the room.
0: Yeah, exactly. I'll, I'll have to talk to you about uh, Dennis, if I can get his info. I'd love to have him on, you know, share some of his stories as well. But um, yeah, with, with, with your career, um, like you mentioned Jason Peau and I interviewed, I haven't released it yet. I had Jason Holland on the show and I know you all three of you are on that Canadian uh, world Junior team that won gold in 96, so, which was a pretty pretty great team that featured also drama uh, Ginla. Just talk about that team and that experience.
1: Well you know like it, it, I think it was the it was probably the closest group and I think the quickest group, that I've ever played with that came together that fast. And I mentioned it on another podcast that, you know, I don't think we were the the most talented team, but I think we came together and I think everybody bought into the roles and what they were supposed to do um, quicker than any other team that I've been a part of. And, you know, you had Iggy and you had Damon Lankow and Chris Phillips and Wade Redden. Uh, Jose Teodoro was our goaltender. Um, you know so we had we did have talent but i think we bought into what we had to do in order to win like we had i think a lot of guys that were detail players is what i would like to call them and that they understood the details of their game and they executed them and and that made us i think um a, a team be, because when you have the top players in the country come together they're usually offensively minded right and The way they structured our team was that you know we needed guys that were going to be foot soldiers and you know do the detail work and and really buy into that and i think it was one of the first times i think that i i started to understand in coaching that when you're given a role and somebody trusts you with that role uh, it, it makes you a better player, but it also makes you feel more important to the team, and that that was something that Marcel Como did very well with us.
0: And you, you mentioned that how like the team was built, you know, to be actually you know, a team, not just you know twenty like basically offensive-minded guys. I know the U.S. Olympic team tried doing that recently, I think for also and also in the World Cup, and they basically just had twenty you know two-way players, and it really didn't translate to what the tournament was you know shaped up to be. So I guess it's a double edged sword as well.
1: I think it is. And, you know, and I've, I've started to learn that in coaching, um, you know, and I've always said that you can't have, you know, 12 forwards that score 30 goals or, you know, coming from a place where they scored 30 goals. Cause you know, who's going to pass them in the puck? Right. Um, you know, who's the type of guy that's going to go out and block shots and kill penalties. Um, and that's, that's something that I learned very early on there is that, you know, they, they specifically put guys into roles. Um, but the one nice thing with them is that they made you feel really important. And that's something that's coming along, I think, in coaching is that, you know, when they're giving you that type of um, role and they're giving you that, you um, they're expressing how important that role and how important you are as a player and a person to the team. I think that was something that, you know, I really took away from that, that, that was important is that, you know, you have to build the team, but you have to make the person feel important for what they're doing.
0: Right. Yeah, absolutely. Now, even when you were playing, like, you know, maybe towards the end of your career, did you think about coaching? Was that something that you wanted to, you know, venture into?
1: Yeah, I always did. And it's funny because I used to sit up uh, in my office and, um, I used to write down all the drills that I could remember, um, systems, tactics. And, uh, my wife used to sit there and kind of laugh at me and she's like, (laughs) you're still drawing drills and, you know, coming up with these different face-offs, face-off plays and penalty kill situations. And, um, you know, it was funny because when I got into coaching, she said, you know, that that was something that was that was pretty smart. I wrote down everything and I kept it logged. Um, I got a couple different software applications where I put the drills onto so that I could always have them and print them off. And, you know, what I found is that when. You know, I think the hockey IQ for some of the players has as kind of. Uh, I think it simmered off a little bit because when I talk to kids you know, they say, well, we were in the same practices, you know, for the whole year, we had like six or seven drills. And I tried to challenge my kids at every level that I've coached to bring in a new drill, you know, maybe not every day, but I would try to make sure that I had new drills Mm -hmm. for them so that I could make them, you know, have to think Mm -hmm. during practice and really, you know, concentrate. So they're not just, you know, kind of going through the motions, as I say. So I think that really helped me. And that's something that, You know, as I started getting near the end of my career, I would just sit and I would literally write for hours different drills and, you know, make sure that I would memorize them. So if something came up where, you know, maybe a practice wasn't going the way I wanted or maybe a drill wasn't going the way I wanted, then I could get a different drill going right away. And then, you know, we would try that drill the next day or, you know, maybe the next week and get them to execute it so that I was trying to constantly make them challenge themselves on, on the ice and, and, and in, 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 different situations. Right.
0: Uh, besides these drills, were there any like particular coaches that you had that you kind of modeled your style after or maybe took you know particular trade from one of them and a couple from another?
1: Uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, I think Ron Mason from Michigan state was a big influence on me. Um, and I didn't realize that, until i left michigan state um but i think i took something from everything or everybody like lauren henning uh you know in new york was was a guy that was really good with, with running practices and then Eric Eklund who was in lexan um i kind of got the idea off of him because every single day that we came in in lexan in sweden he had a different drill and Then when we went into Russia, Russia was completely different where they only had, you know, six or seven drills. So the practices became monotonous. And, you know, they would run a drill for 15 minutes. And, you know, you could just see the tempo got down and the guys weren't really – they weren't engaged. So uh, I think Paul Maurice – I think Paul Maurice was one of the first guys that he ran a practice in about 45 minutes and he would have 10 to 12 drills and it would just be up-tempo, up-tempo, up-tempo. Um, Barry Trotz, you know, when he was in Nashville, Trotz, he was a guy that, you know, his, his practices were great, but he was extremely detailed and he was extremely organized in terms of, of making sure we understood, you know, positionally where we, where we needed to be. So I think, I took a lot from different different guys. And Bill Stewart was another one in New York um, with the Islanders. Like, when he came in and he took over, like, Stewie was – he was fantastic because he really understood the group and he understood what needed to be done. And he made the pra- practices fun. And he made it so that when guys went out – the guys wanted to go on, onto the ice and, you know, they wanted to perform for him. So I think I, I took – a handful of guys that i had played for and um i kind of modeled I, I tried to kind of mold like mold i guess is a better word i tried to mold myself with them and john stevens was another one when i was in philadelphia with the phantoms um, you know his practices were, were extremely up-tempo and, and organized and detailed so i tried to take a little bit from everybody and then try to make myself my own coach
0: okay no that that's 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 totally fair that's actually a good idea um so 94 you, you get drafted just on the cusp of you know the first round and it's you know 32nd the, uh the second round what what was that experience like uh were you projected to go in the first round or were you kind of slotted where you were
1: i i was and um what had happened was I think what kind of raised, because I was playing junior B hockey in Stratford, Ontario for the Stratford Cullitans, And, uh, you know, I'd been kind of looked upon as a, I guess, a pretty good prospect because I played junior D hockey in C4 for the C4 Centenaries. Uh, my first two games when I was 13, then I played a full season when I was 14. Then I went to Stratford. Um, and then when I was 17, I got offered to go to the Spengler Cup over in Switzerland, which was you know, a huge international Christmas tournament. Right. And when I went over there, there was a ton of guys that had played, you know, high level, obviously, over in Europe, but they would, you know, some guys had played in the NHL, like Hawk and Lube. I think there was a Koivu. I think it was Saku Koivu that was over there and, and some highly rated prospects. And I think that that kind of raised me into a situation where, you know, people thought that I wasn't playing major junior, but I was playing junior B, but I had, Done very well over in the Spangler Cup, so they thought that you know, projection-wise, I was going to be probably a late, late first-round pick is what they were thinking, but early second-round pick. So, you know, when that happened, um, it, uh, it it was it was a surprise to me because I was you know I was I think the first you know non-major um, junior player picked if I if I recall correctly I think it was I was the first one that wasn't playing major junior so I I think that you know I I still was surprised and and very happy but I knew that you know from my talks with a lot of the NHL teams that I would be selected in the first you know first two rounds for sure is what I was being told
0: right um do you have any memorable like stories meeting with you know particular organizations
1: you know I I don't remember because I'm when you when you get into that situation you're meeting with so many people and there's so many different questions that are are you know bounced off of you and you know it's such a whirlwind and you're you know at the time i i was just turning 18 um so you know i i'm still obviously you know socially i don't think and maturity wise i'm not sure if i really understood how to deal with adults in that setting i talked to a lot of people but When you sit in a room, you know, as a young adolescent and you have between 10, 15, 20 adults, you know, playing good cop, bad cop, there's a lot of things that go through your head. And, you know, unfortunately, I don't remember um, any particular conversation, but I do remember, you know, going from basically meeting to meeting and, you know, my parents are driving me around. I'm going to all these different hotels. I'm going up into the suites. And talking to the, all these, you know, the, the brass of NHL teams, and it's just a complete whirlwind, and it's it can be overwhelming, and it creates a lot of anxiety in you, right. obviously. Um, but it was it was a good thing because, you know, I was able to figure out how how to, you know, converse with an adult. And, you know, I, I tried to make sure that I was able to, you know, really think about the answer to the questions that were asked to me. But, um, you know, as I said, it was just and I've heard a lot of other guys on podcasts like it, it was overwhelming. And it's, it's something where I think it's changed a little bit because, you know, the questions that were asked back then, I don't think they could ask them now. Um, right. <laughs> but <laughs> but, uh, you know, it it it, uh, it it was something that was an eye opener, but I think it was good for me in the long run.
0: Now when you went you know through these interviews, was it just you in there? Did you have your maybe you know representative or a parent or someone like that or was, was it strictly you?
1: No, it was it was strictly me and I don't I can't speak on behalf of the other guys because right. you know the major junior guys could have agents at the time or advisors and I wasn't allowed to have one. So when I went into these meetings, I was I was going in by myself, And there was nobody, I didn't have anybody outside the door. I didn't have my parents. I didn't have an advisor, an agent that was outside the door. Um, It was just me going up there and basically answering any question that was asked of me.
0: Right. Now, um, with you you being a coach, if you have a potential player who is going to get drafted, would you kind of reach out to them to kind of offer advice? Or would you kind of wait until they kind of reach out to you?
1: Uh, you know, it's, it's unique. I I think in that, um, you know, when I got into the USHL, there's such a high level and there's such a high demand for the kids is, you know, the teams would come down and they would sometimes notify me or sometimes not. And I always used to take the kids. And if I knew that there was a possibility of them even being selected, um, I wouldn't tell them that the teams were coming, but I would always tell them, you know, here's how you have to act. Um, You know, here's where, you know, you need to make sure that you're calm, you're collected when you're speaking to them, answer, you know, you have to answer truthfully and you have to make sure that um, you don't get rattled. And I, I used to go over that with, with quite a few of the kids just to make sure that they were prepared because You know, having that experience going in there and the anxiety that it creates, I wanted to make sure that I at least was able to kind of relieve a little bit of that tension and a little bit of that fearfulness in them. So that's really what I tried to do with my players is just make sure that they understood what was going to happen. And I said, you know, in these situations, you may have a good cop and you may have a bad cop. And I said, you you can't get rattled in those situations and you can't um, get offended in those situations. And I said, you just have to stay calm and you have to make sure that you answer uh, correctly and you have to be as honest as possible. And I think, I think it's helped them because when, when the teams came in, they, as I said, I think it's changed and they do a really good job, but they also do have like uh, personality questionnaires and, you know, sometimes the kids after the games would have to go into a room and, and answer a series of questions and then fill it up, you know, a questionnaire or a suitability test. And, you know, they they started to kind of see like what it was really like and what they were getting into. So I, I tried to make sure that I could give them from my experiences um, as as much confidence in this in, in the situation and as much uh, knowledge as I
0: could. Right. After you get drafted, you go to Michigan State for three seasons. Was um, was that something a difficult decision to, to do, rather than just you know continuing juniors, or you really wanted to, you know kind of experience the college game?
1: I I really I wanted to experience the college game, um, just because I think the the education was so important to my parents, and it was it was important to me because I, I, I understood that when you're done your career. You know, you can get into coaching, but, you know, there's also different situations where you might, might not be able to stay in the game for a period of time and you're going to have to find something, you know, to do. So I, I think it was a little bit hard because coming from Ontario, all of my friends were going to the OHL. Right. And when I went to um, our under 17 camp, I think all the guys that had been drafted and a majority of them were going to be going to major junior. And then when I went to the under 18s for team Canada, uh, when we went to Japan, I was the only, you know, non major junior player. I was the only junior B player that was there. So, you know, you kind of have a little bit of ribbing and you start to kind of second guess yourself. But, you know, as I said before, I really had to stick to my guns and that this is something that was important to me. It was important to my family. And I really wanted to make sure that I got an education that I could fall back on after hockey. So I I think, you know, to answer your question, there's a lot of different influences that come into a young man when they're trying to make these decisions. And you have to make sure that you, you really fit, you really stick to your guns, but you have to fit what you want. And what your outcome is going to be, because you never know, there could be an injury, there could be something that happens, and you don't have that opportunity, but you do have an opportunity to get an education, and and it's so important to have that to fall back on. So I, I really made sure that, you know, I, I wanted to go to Michigan State from a young age, and it was something that I really wanted to You know to do an experience and it was something that i was really looking forward to so the three years there that i had were you know i made so many memories and 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 so many friendships and 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 you know i had so many good life experiences there that it it actually really helped me when i translated into professional hockey because you know we were making our own meals we were doing our own laundry um you know we were shopping for ourselves And, you know, I think that really helped me because some of the guys that had played major junior, they weren't able to do some of those things like, you know, cooking was foreign to them, doing their own laundry was foreign to them, you know, just going to, you know, a grocery store and and, and getting, you know, proper meals. That was all foreign paying phone bills, you know, getting a phone set up, getting cable set up like I was able to do all that. And I think that really, really helped me translate you know, when I first went into the pro ranks.
0: So you're pretty much making a lot of mac and cheese for yourself, huh?
1: <laughs> uh, no, actually, like, we, we bought a barbecue um, uh-huh. at Michigan State. We, yeah, we, we, uh, when we moved off campus after our first year, because, you know, you do have the cafeteria, and, and you're in a dorm your first year. It's mandatory right. uh, when I was there. But, you know, our second year when we moved off campus, um, one of the first things we did is we bought a barbecue. And, you know, we started barbecuing chicken up, steak up, um, you know, we were seasoning things. So, you know, we, we really kind of bonded in that sense of, you know, how to do things. And, you know, guys that were there, we were able to do our own laundry and, and figure out, like, hey, we've got a washing machine, we've got a dryer, we've got to make sure we're doing our laundry. So we really figured it out, I think, pretty fast as a group because, you um, as freshmen, trans, you know, when we went to, to be sophomores and moving off campus, we all went into the same home. And that's when we really started to figure out like, hey, this is the stuff like if we need cable, we got to call a cable company. If we want a phone installed, we got to get a phone. And, you know, we got to pay rent. So every at the end of every month, we got to make sure that we have all of our rents, you know, accounted for. So those things there were really, really good life experiences. So when I went to Hamilton um, my first year, you know, I was able to just, you know, figure out I got to get this. I got to do this. I have to have this. I got to be able to cook this, this, you know, these foods. And, you know, those, those things I think were very important.
0: Right. Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, because people think it's just you're playing hockey, but you're really – you know, growing up as becoming, you know, a young adult and, you know, doing the things that, you know, normal people do, to, you know, off the ice as well, so.
1: so right, yeah. no, no, exactly. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly.
0: Yeah, and you, you played with a few um, former NHLers in Michigan State, you know, Mike York was there, Anson Carter, M. Murray, so, you know, uh, do you room with any of those guys?
1: Uh, no, because typically when, when the classes come in and when you move off campus, you're, you're usually, um, moving together. Right. And, you know, my first year we, I think it was a 12 bedroom house that we were in. So we had six of our, our, yeah, we had six of our, uh, our, our class that moved in. Um, we had a couple girls on the volleyball team. Uh, we had a couple of soccer players and then we had two buddies that were, you know, we were extremely, we became very, very close as freshmen so we all moved in together and that was something that was, was you know uh, I think an experience because you had to make sure that you were taking care of yourself and, you know, cause you have classes that you have to go to, you have practice that, that you have to go to and some of the seasons they, they would kind of crisscross. So we had to make sure like, you know, everyone was getting a ride to where they had to be. So there were some times where, If we had to drive to the rink, we would take some of the soccer girls um, to their facilities so that they would be able to practice and then kind of wait around, pick them back up, come back to the house, uh, cook a meal, and, you know, watch a movie or something like that. And and those were just, you know, life experiences that, you know, for me anyways, like they they really helped me in terms of socializing and, you know, coming from Canada uh, and a very, very small town in Canada – and going to what I would consider a big city, which was East Lansing, which it's not right, (laughs) but it was to me, um, you know, it, it really helped me figure out a lot of different things that I needed to do away from the rink so that I could be successful on the rink.
0: Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you, you go to Hamilton and eventually get called up, you know, with the Oilers. Um, what was that first game experience like? Uh,
1: well, uh, it, it didn't start off great because in warm-ups, I hit, uh, I hit the crossbar, you know, and I'm nervous. So, you know, we're all shooting pucks and kind of going around. And I hit the crossbar, and it goes, and it hits Doug Weight in the face. Ooh. And, yeah, that was that was my, my first game. And I was super nervous because it was uh, the Battle of Alberta because we were playing Calgary. So I think in the first... I think it was in the first like three to four minutes. There must have been four fights. I remember George Laroque fought Todd Simpson. Right. Uh, Bill Bill Heard fought Sandy McCarthy. I think. Uh, so I was sitting there on the bench, and and we had a really tough team in Hamilton. We had Dennis Bondy. We had George Laroque. We had Tyrant Sandwith. Um, you know. So uh, Doug Friedman was there too, and you know. So we had a tough team, and and I saw that. But at the NHL level, when you have you know 20,000 people in a building and they're going nuts and it's 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 a huge rivalry. I would equate it to Michigan State and Michigan. Right. And that happens in the first, you know, the first 10 minutes of warm-ups and then that happens in the game. Uh, I really didn't settle down and then we got onto a power play and I went out there and I got an assist on a goal. So <laughs> I think that kind of eased my nerves a little bit, but you know, there's there's just a lot when I when we did get called up, there was a lot of anxiety that, uh, you know, you have to deal with and you kind of have to fight through.
0: Right. And, and you were playing with some, you know, former Islanders on that team. Obviously, you mentioned Doug Wade, Bill Guerin, uh, Ryan Smith, I mean, Matt Lindgren And so, I mean, there are a lot of, you know, former Islanders that, you know, listeners will you know remember, especially Doug Wade, who, you know, was the coach for a couple of years. Um did you kind of pick their brains? You know, because Bill Guerin and you know was was a, you know a borderline Hall of Famer, and you know Doug Weight, you know the two big guys, you know for Team USA. So did you kind of like pick their brains when you first got up there.
1: Well, a funny funny thing is is um, I actually when I got sent down, they had traded for Doug or for uh, Billy Guerin, and I got a phone call from Bill, and um, I remember answering the phone, and he's like, Hey, he goes this is Bill Guerin. And you know, I was—it's on the phone. I'm still kind of starstruck. Right. And I'm like, "Hey, how are you?" And he's like, uh, "Was wondering if I'd be able to get the number nine from you." <laughs> and I said, "Yeah, no problem. You can take it. Go ahead." So that was one—that was my one of my first, uh, you know, dealings with with Bill was just over the phone. And now. Mm-hmm. You know, I texted him uh, the other day. He's a GM, obviously, in Minnesota, and I'd been texting him a little bit, and we kind of laughed about the story, about the number. But, you know, the the guys that were there, like Dougie, um, Curtis Joseph was another one that was really, really good in terms of, you know, just how he treated people. Um, Brian Marchment, like, he was super to me uh the, the guys were great knowing that you know you're a young guy coming in and uh a funny story is my first nhl goal we were in ottawa and uh curtis joseph we were in the changing room before the game and he looked at me and he's like wadi he goes i think you're gonna get one tonight hmm. and i i kind of was like well yeah that'd be nice like i'm kind of squeezing my stick right now and you know, sure enough, I I, I got an opportunity with uh, Jason Arnett was in the corner and I was driving to the net and uh, he threw it in front and uh, I, I just got enough wood on it that uh, went through Damian Rhodes' legs and you know that was my first goal so you know those those guys and they were so happy for me um, you know they they really you know made me feel good like they they were so I think some of them were so they were more excited for me. Than I was that I got my first NHL goal.
0: Yeah, it's, I mean it's something that they can never take away from you. You know, they, you, your first goal, and it's uh, however it happens, it's it happens back of the net. <laughs> right, yeah, right, absolutely. So you know, I guess the following year is when you get traded to the Islanders, and um, it's funny story when when I had uh, you mentioned Jason Podolin before, and he was telling me the story about when he was going through his draft interviews and the Toronto Maple Leafs said, oh, they're going to take him, I think at 15 or 16, uh, you know, he was getting all sides all of a sudden they draft Eric Fischo, who obviously you got traded for, um, you know, Mike Milbury loved trading goalies, like, you know, basically changing pants. Uh, so yeah. so you, you, you got traded to the Islanders and obviously that was kind of a low point at that time when the Islanders um, – were you excited for the opportunity? Were you kind of like, you know, kind of apprehensive? What, what was your initial reaction to the trade?
1: Uh, you know, I, I think for me, it was a it was a good thing because Edmonton had so many guys that were, you know, high level. Like, you know, as you said, they had Billy Guerin, they had Dougie Waite, um, they had Kovalenko, they had. Uh, Boris Mirnov. Uh, so, you know, with, with the guys that were there, I, I didn't think I was going to have an opportunity because they still had some longevity in their careers. Whereas when I looked at what was going on in New York, they did have a youth movement, but they did have some older guys that, you know, I thought there might be a possibility that, you know, they might retire or I might have a better opportunity, um, you know, to get. A spot and get a roster spot there. So I kind of looked at it as this is a good opportunity for me.
0: Right. And, you know, because that team had some good young players still. I mean, it was Iggy Palfy, you know, they got paid for Robert Reichel. I mean, he, obviously, you know, Brian Smolinski. I um, mean, so they, they actually had some good. I was just, I, I just don't know what the issue with, with that team was. I don't know if it was obviously, you know, Mike Milbert or just not keeping a certain team together because. They they had good players throughout his tenure there, but it just traded them left and right. So I, I don't I don't really know why he couldn't keep a team together. I know you uh, know you know maybe ownership had an issue and kind of directives with with salary cap or you know not salary cap back then, but just you know keeping the budget down. But young guys don't make a lot of money.
1: <laughs> yeah, and and that's you know like we had Chara, we had Barard, we right. had Eric Brewer. Uh, We had Luongo there. Um, You know, I think think the issue, for me anyways, I think the issue is that there wasn't enough patience with some of the younger guys and that, you know, they have to be able to make mistakes. And there is going to be some growing pains. But I don't think he gave enough guys. Like, you know, they traded McCabe before I got there. Uh, Chara was sent down. Um, they traded Berard. Uh, you know, Brew, they gave him an opportunity. Timmy Connolly, they gave him a good opportunity. Uh, but some of the other guys, I don't think they gave them the opportunity to grow into themselves and grow into their game. And if you look at a lot of the teams now, you know, you know, they're giving these kids opportunities to make mistakes, grow into their game, and understand that there's 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 gonna be some growing pains. And you know, you you have to be able to live with that. And back then I don't think Mike had the patience to do that, and I think that really affected the organization because you know, if if you turn a company over year after year after year after year, it it's hard to sustain and it's hard to you know, make make that company company Bible. And mm-hmm. I think that, that's really what happened. And, you know, I look at it for me at the USHL level, like we have turnover at the USHL level so much um, because kids are going into college. Like you might have them for a year and then they're gone. You would be really lucky to have them for two. And if you have them for three, like that is, you know, usually a gold mine. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when I looked at the Islanders, like, The Tommy Salo situation where, you know, they didn't really give him an opportunity and then he goes to Edmonton and he plays lights out. Um, you know, we get, uh, we get Felix Potten in and, you know, then all of a sudden they trade him Ziggy signs and, and then they deal Ziggy to LA and they deal smoke to LA and, you know, Smolinski to me, um, you know, he was I don't want to say he was a glue guy because he was super talented right. and he put up points and he he did a lot of good things, but I don't think the situation for him was a good situation, but he really, really helped a lot of the younger guys and he helped me in particular. And then when you're trading him away and you're trading Ziggy away and then Reichel leaves. And then you're trading, you know, uh, Berard away. You're you're just not really. There's not enough time for the group to really kind of adhere together, to become a good team, which in turn would become a good organization.
0: Right, that's so true. Especially when there's no expectations on on the team, there's no pressure. You'd figure you'd want the team, you know, to kind of grow. Uh, You know, obviously, I don't I don't think Milbury had any, you know, issues with job security back then, you know, they were having issues with ownership. I think they were, I think he was safe. I think he was pretty much running, you know, the whole organization. So I don't think that there was any issues with him losing his job that he felt pressure to make these moves.
1: No, you know, and, and that's, that's so true. And that's, I think as a group, we kind of looked at it like that too. And I think that was, a I think that built frustration because when you have changes in ownership that many times in that short of a span, you know, they, they're going to give the guy that was there the opportunity to make the most of it. And he's going to say what he needs to say in order to keep his, you know, his position. And I think that's really what happened is that when you had, you know, I don't know how many, I think we had the year I got there, there was a change of ownership the year before. Then we had another change of ownership going into my second year. And, you know, it was basically just fire sale after fire sale. But, you know, the one person that's there is keeping their position. And I think if, if they would have, you know, when Mike stepped down, we were in Pittsburgh and we were on the bus. And, you know, Mike basically just stood up and said, you know, you guys need to get, and I'm paraphrasing, mm-hmm. you guys need to get your shit together right. or, you know, you're all going to be gone. And then he just walked off the bus and Stewie took over. Well, Stewie had a completely different, you know, thought process and coaching style and coaching philosophy that really helped us as a group. And I think if they would have just continued that and, and, you know, let us build off of that. And, you know, we had, we knew we had Luongo coming up and he was going to be a stud and everybody knew that. And, you know, they obviously, they sent him to the minors and they wanted him to kind of get, you know, his feet wet there and understand it and figure out the pro game. But then they called him back up a couple times. I think if they just would have let that young group and I would, I think I would put myself in that category too. I think if they just would have let us kind of, you know, figure it out on our own and, and have some good guidance and, you know, let Mike take care of the GM situation, I think that that organization would have turned around a lot quicker than what it did because it took a long, long time to to really get the organization back on its feet.
0: Yeah, I mean, it really did. And, you know, th- there's no problem with trading young players if you're bringing back, you bring you back a veteran. You know, they did that with Connolly and Taylor Pyatt, and They got, you know, Michael Pekka, who, you know, was great. Even, I know, the Yashin trade worked out and, you know, at, at the time, but, you know, obviously you look at it now, it was a disaster, but, you know, just trading younger, you know, getting Trevor Linden in when trading uh, was it, McCabe and Todd Bertuzzi, it was just like some moves. I think he felt just one day that I'm going to make a trade and then let me see who I can get rid of to bring in. It was like he was running the team as a fantasy hockey team.
1: Yeah. and And, and to be quite honest, like, you know, just being around that group, there was always a fearfulness right. that you're going to lose, lose your, your roster spot or you're going to be traded. And, you know, to play like that, especially, you know, in the National Hockey League, that's a hard thing to do mentally. Because when you come to the rink, you're always in I – I don't want to stay a state of panic – but you're always fearful of, you know, what's going to happen today, you know, and, and that plays on you. And as, as, as a player, and as I said with good organizations, if you, if you are able to play with a little bit of freedom and a little bit of, you know, you're able to make a mistake and, and you're not going to lose your roster spot or it's not going to be threatened, then you're able to mature as a player. You're able to develop as a player and you're able to help the team which is the most important part. And that's, that's something that I, I really felt as a group. We just never knew what was going to happen from day to day. And that's, you know, as I said, when I go back to a company, if there's that much turnover and there's that much change, you know, the person's, the people that are coming in, they're going to take a little while to adjust. Like, you know, if you're trading an older guy, he's got a family, so he's got to move. He's got to find a place. He's got to get his family. He's got to get his kids in school. Um, you know, he, he's got to make sure that his wife is, is comfortable. And when you have that type of turnover, it, it's it's hard to play at your best. So I think if they – I think if Mike just would have left it alone a little bit, I, I really think – and, you know, you, you just list off the names, McCabe, um, Trader Brewer, Trader um, Z. Uh, traded Smolinski, traded Palfi. Like, if you just would have left that group to themselves, I really think they would have had an opportunity. You traded Tommy Sallow, uh, you know, traded Luongo. Just keep that group together and give them an opportunity. You either give them an opportunity to succeed or you give them the opportunity to fail. But you have to give them time. It, it can't be a process of, you know, a couple months and then you got to make another trade. Trade. Or change, and then you've got to make another change a month later. It, it, it really sense the balance and the chemistry within the group.
0: Yeah, and you know, you mentioned Wongo, Case in point, he gets drafted. I think at the time when he's the highest drafted goalie in, in draft history. Then three years later, he gets traded because they're, he falls in love with D.P.H. And you know, D.P.H. You know, had some great years with the Islanders. Unfortunately, injuries kind of derailed it. But you, you have a building block in Wongo you can draft another piece to the puzzle and add. It was just, just basically, I think you're wasting two drafts right there.
1: Well, and, you know, that's very true because I remember when Bert came in and, you know, he was a rookie goaltender. And every guy in that locker room, when they saw him on the ice, like, even though we, we knew he might get sent down, we – we knew that he was going to be something special. You know, and, you know, we had Wade Flaherty there. Like, he was a great mentor. Um, He was a great guy with with Tommy Sallow. He was great with Felix Potvin. He knew his role, but he was a fantastic mentor to all those goaltenders because he was older. He had been around the league. He was extremely astute, you know, at the goalie position, but he could help them. And I think that's something where if they they would have, you know, given Bert a little bit more time, then I think that organization. And as you said, you keep him around and you use that first pick for you know somebody else in that situation, whatever piece you need. You let that group, you know, form that chemistry. That's where you're going to get that cohesiveness. And and I just think that it was, some of the deals were made. I think they were made rashly, and I think they were made. Uh, it, I don't know if there was a lot of foresight in in the group itself of what could have been.
0: Right, and I had um, Bill McCult, uh tell me you, know, you played with him also. Um, a, st- a great story. Milbury called him into his office. He's like, "I I, I need your thoughts on Zaino Chara. Just just, you know, just just tell me you know, what you think about him." And Bill was like. Mike, you this guy is going to be hall of famer. You don't trade him, give him some time. He's raw, but he's going to be a tremendous player. He's like, "Oh, okay, thanks. Thanks, Bill." No problem. So what happens? He gets <laughs> traded alongside Bill, you know, in, in in that trade. So it's just like it's, you know, it's it's it's, it's comical at this point, you know.
1: <laughs> yeah, and, and I mean, if you look at the and we I think we were fortunate enough to at the time with our age as a group understand like the dynasty that the islanders had like that group stuck together you know trotche bossy dennis Potfin, nystrom uh gillies uh billy smith like butch goring they they kept that group together and and you know they went through some growing pains and you look at the islanders like they knew they had special talents in Gretzky and, and, and Messier and Coffey and Curry and Glenn Anderson and they had Grand Fear, but they knew there might be some growing pains there. But you just have to give them the time and you have to have the patience in, in order to, you know, figure out that core group and then build around them. And you know, you look at Pittsburgh did the same thing like with Lemieux, like they went out and at the time they understood they had a special talent but they started to get building blocks and, and pieces around him as they saw, but they had the patience and, and Crosby now with, uh, you know, Malkin, and you're starting to see that in Tampa Bay, like they're giving them. And and John Cooper, he's, he's a uh, friend of mine, like Coop understands, like there has to be some patience and there has to be some additions and there has to maybe be some su- subtra- subtractions, but you, you still have to have the patience with the group in order to give them that opportunity, and that's that's something where I think um, you know I, I learned from that situation, right. and I wanted to make sure that I took that into my coaching philosophy. And it you know I was you know, a head coach or a GM, you know you have to have that type of patience with with that group in order to have success for them and for yourself.
0: Is it difficult? being, you know, that having the dual role of both GM and uh, coach? Uh,
1: yeah, it is, uh, especially at the USHL level, right. level because, you know, you're, and, and in my situation, like, we were dealing with a lease, um, you know, so I was working with city council, I was working with, um, you know, the mayor, I was working with a management company, uh, so a lot of my time was devoted to not only that, but also, making sure front office was okay. Um, you know, potentially looking at, uh, uh, you know, trades. So you're on the phone constantly and, you know, then you're on the ice, you're coaching, you're traveling, uh, you're talking to different NHL teams, you're talking to colleges. So, you know, it does take up quite a bit of your time, but it is, it is something that I, I found extremely enjoyable. I would love to do it again. Uh, uh, if there's an opportunity, but it, it, it definitely is. And then, you know, I guess on the flip side, this year with my son, the only thing I had to focus on was coaching. So I coached my son and, and you know, I was constantly looking at different videos, different face-off plays, different uh, drills that I wanted to execute and practice, you know, different systems. So I kind of started to see, you know, where – you have those two responsibilities and if they're separated, you could probably be a little bit better at one than the other, but I, I still found it enjoyable.
0: Right. Now uh, pivoting back to Millberry for one sec, who had that dual role a couple of times, did you guys feel like immense pressure when he was the coach? Cause he was also the general manager.
1: Yeah. You know, I, I go back to the, uh, when you're you're going to the rink every single day and you know i think the difference was when i was in edmonton or i guess a better one it would be um nashville you know you had trotsy as a coach and you had david poyle as a gm and we wouldn't see david you know a lot i mean we would see him around and stuff like that but you know trots He was on the ice with us. He was interacting with us and you weren't as fearful when you just had a coach and you had a separate GM because when you have that dual personality and that dual responsibility where they do have the ability to trade you, there is a different type of anxiety when you're on the ice because you don't want to, you don't want to be the guy that makes the mistakes.
0: How much when Milbury wasn't coaching did you actually see him
1: Uh, at the time uh, we didn't see him all that much Uh, you know because when Stewie took over you know we just had Stewie so I think you know as I said before you know when Stewie took over I think there was a a, there was a relief there was a sense of relief Because it was just Stewie and Stewie was coaching. And like if Stewie, if Stewie called you into his office, you know, to talk about stuff, you didn't feel that pressure or that anxiety. When Mike called you into the office, there was definitely a sense of, you know, anxiety of, you know, like, why am I going there? Like, what, what's going to happen? Because he did have the, the ability to pull the trigger to move. You. Whereas Stewie didn't have that. Um, so I, I think that that really it started to take uh, the pressure off the group, uh, the team, in that if you did get called into the coach's office, you you knew it was about you know how you were playing, or you know Stewie would ask about how how are things off the ice, like how's things with your family, like what are your different hobbies, like he asked different things that really kind of made you feel connected with him and that you were an actual person and not a tradable commodity. Right.
0: Any good stories when Milbury did pull you into his office? Uh,
1: the one, t- well, <laughs> I mean, I don't know if it was a good story, but right. the one time he did pull me into my office was I was, uh, I was in the top 10 of rookie scoring my first year. And, you know, that's when Brendan Morrison was there or Billy McCall, uh, Milan, Hayduke, uh, Chris jury. And I had been doing pretty good. And I remember he called me in and we weren't obviously doing well as a group. And he told me, I'm going to be cutting your ice back. And, you know, there's some nights you're not going to be doing this. You're not going to be doing that. Uh, um, your special teams play and, you know, your situational play is going to change and your minutes are going to drop, but I got to showcase these guys and I have to make sure that I'm able to move them. And that was the whole conversation. And sure enough, like all my, you know, and he goes, I understand where you are in the rookie scoring, but this is what I have to do for the organization. And you know, as a young kid, I thought, well, yeah, like if that's what he's going to do for the organization, hopefully in the following years, that's going to help me. Of course. Yeah. But looking back on it, <laughs> it really didn't—it really didn't help me uh, in in any way. But um, that was one of my conversations with him. And then um, I remember one time we were in St. Louis, and and I went on the ice early. Uh, I was the first guy out there, and I took a, a bucket of pucks, and I was shooting them, um, you know, between twelve to eighteen inches. Cause this is when the butterfly goaltenders were just kind of coming back and or right. they were coming into the league. Yeah. So they would go down, you know, into the butterfly. So you'd have to shoot, you know, just over the pads on either side. So I was working on a bucket of pucks. It was like a hundred pucks. And I was just trying to shoot it like right over the blocker, blocker side pad. And I got probably halfway done and Mike comes out. So, of course, <laughs> you know, I look over my shoulder and I'm, I'm like just trying to figure out what's going to happen here. Right. And he skates over to me and he goes, you do realize that if you shoot there, you're never going to score a goal. And he goes, you're going to shoot every single puck in this bucket on the ice into the corner. So, of course, as a young guy, as a rookie, I decide, well, I got to do what he says. Right. So I get the <laughs> bucket of pucks. <laughs> I start shooting them on the ice. Well, then the guys start coming out, and, um, you know, they're kind of looking at me, and I remember Brian Smolinski came over to me, and he goes, what are you doing? <laughs> and I go, I have to shoot this whole bucket of pucks on the ice into the right-hand corner of the net. And he said to me, why, why are you doing that? And I said, well, Mike, Mike told me that if I'm going to score any goals – I have to shoot pucks on the ice into this spot. And he goes, are you crazy? And I go, no. I said, I I have to do this. And he goes, Milbury told you to shoot every single puck on the ice into the right-hand side of the net where you've got the space between the goaltender going down and the butterfly and the blocker. He's like, that's never going to happen. He's like, you're never going to score a goal doing that. And I go, I know. I said, but Mike told me to do that. So I have to do it. Wow. <laughs> so that's what I did, and and then there was another one. Um, we went to Lake Placid, and this doesn't involve me; it involves Mike Rupp, unfortunately. Okay. But uh, you know, Rupper was a big guy, right? And you know, he, he was a uh, he was a power forward, and uh, I went out. I think he was he was on the ice with the rookies before we were going out. And he had a glove underneath his – he's a left shot. So underneath his right uh, arm, he's got a glove. And every time he takes a shot, he has to keep that glove in between his, his chest and his arm. So guys are kind of looking and they're staring. And they're, I can't remember the other coach that was out there at the time. But they're, they're looking at him. They're like, what is going on? So – Rupper gets done, comes off the ice, and he said, if I drop that glove, I had to do – I think it was like 50 push-ups or 25 push-ups or something like that. But he's like, I had to shoot every single puck and keep that glove in between my chest (laughs) and my arm. And the guys are like, well, who made you do that? And he was like, Mike Milbury. He's like, he didn't think I shot the puck hard enough because he thought that my right arm extended too far up when I shot a puck, so I had to shoot I don't know how many buckets full of pucks with this glove underneath his arm.
0: Oh, my God. <laughs> That's probably why he didn't sign with the Islanders, right?
1: <laughs> well, he, I, yeah, I think that, that would be a pretty good indication of why, but, um, you know, there was just some bizarre things. Like, uh, you know, I remember... Uh, to go back to, to Billy McCall, I remember when we were trading for Max Lindgren, um, Mike called me into, into the office and, and just said, like, I think it was Mike Greer and Max Lindgren who they were, they were looking at. And because I had played with them, they were asking what, uh, what we wanted to do. And they asked me about Max, and I said, you know, he's a centerman. I said, he can play wing. I said, he's, he's very skillful. Um, you know, he's the type of guy that, you know, you bring in, he's great in the locker room, you know, he's a sweet, so he's a great guy. And I said the same thing about Rosie. I said, he's different. He's a right shot, right winger, power forward, goes to the net hard. I said, he's the type of guy that, you know, will be able to put pucks, you know, in, in, in tight, uh, into the net for us. I said, Matt is more of a skilled guy that's going to be able to, you know, distribute the puck to different players and play in different roles and different settings. I said, so those are two different guys. And he just looked at me and said, all right, thanks. And then I walked out. So that I guess that was another Milbury uh, uh, Milbury story of, of when I was a one-on-one with him.
0: Right. Oh, boy. All right. Uh, one more question. Uh, you know, you're know, coaching now. Do you see yourself coaching uh, professionally, you know, whether it's you know, the ECHL, ECHL, or even NHL?
1: Yeah, you know, that's something that I would really like to do. Um, You know, I've kind of looked at everything in terms of, you know, I I really enjoyed my time in the USHL. Uh, I I wouldn't mind looking at Major Junior back in uh, Canada. Um, You know, but I, I, I think the ultimate for anybody is that they want to get to the NHL to be a coach. And, you know, for me, whether it's, you know, an assistant or a skill development coach, uh, or a head coach, uh, you know, at some point in time, you know, I would, I would definitely like to be able to move up, you know, in in terms of my career as a player and as a coach, I think they have kind of the same parallels is that you always want to be moving up and you always want to be, you know, getting to that next level. Um, but the flip side is, is that I've also looked at college where, you know, there's a little bit more stability, there's less games, but there is a lot more recruiting that you have to do. And, you know, as a head coach, you're doing a lot of fundraising and you're doing a lot of appearances to get, um, you know, the alumni and the sponsorship and stuff like that. So that's something that, you know, in terms of job security with a college coach, it's a lot higher than if I was to think about the major junior or the pro side of the game.
0: Right. And that's something you have, you know, background in, you know, with being a GM as as well as a coach, you kind of, kind of take that lead as well
1: yeah and that's you, you know and, and they're starting to kind of diversify it like even in the ushl where they're splitting the gm and the head coaching position um and major juniors kind of doing the same thing so you know you're taking you're taking two plates and you're distributing them so that you know each individual can focus on you know maybe they're they're better suited for it in terms of their background and their their I guess, hockey education. So they're starting to do that more and more. So I would probably have to start to pick what I would want to do. Would it be, you know, a head coaching position, a general manager, uh, skill development, um, or player development. So you'd have to kind of, you know, diversify yourself. But I think in terms of what I've done, I have all three characteristics there and the other thing, too, is that being a GM in the USHL, there's a lot of scouting involved. So I did do a lot of scouting, and, you know, I had to go out and make player evaluations and talk to players and talk to agents and talk to, you know, families. And um, I, I think that's something, too, that, you know, I hope will help me in terms of diversifying, you know, a job situation for me is that I do have those backgrounds and that they all interest me. It's not, not like I, I – don't want to do one or the other, I think I would like to do one, if not all of them, because they can't in some way, shape or form kind of interact with each other. So I think that's something that I would definitely want to, to, you know, look into, but I, I hope with my background, it's diversified enough that, you know, there's a, there's a position out there for me.
0: Yeah. But Mike, I wish you nothing but uh, the best luck, you know, over, over the next year and hopefully you guys relocate and find, you know, find a great city, but thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it.
1: No, thank you. I really appreciate it. Anytime.
0: And a special thanks to Mike for joining me today. I mean, some of those stories were fantastic and you can follow Mike on Twitter at Mike Watt 19. And if you have a guest suggestion, hit me up on Twitter at the 19 or at lighthousehockey.com com. Check out all the amazing shows on the Lighthouse channel featuring P.T. Isles, Islanders Anxiety, Isles Buzz, Islanders Award Winners, My Favorite Islander Game, and of course, Lighthouse Lookback. And check out com for all your defunct logos. They do a great job on there. And if you use the code BUZZ15, you can get 15% off your purchase. They have T-shirts, hoodies, mugs. com. And we'll see you next time on Whitehouse World